Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, the houses, and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you, and moan bitterly, and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have no one to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest. Because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lie, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. And he who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we do come to your word this morning, we come to a difficult passage with many things that can confuse us. We ask that we have help from you and by your spirit, that even in your severe words, that we would find life and repentance and grace. And so come, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Several years ago, I began reading the short stories of Flannery O'Connor, and I found in her characters something intriguing. The characters were so much larger than life that they provided great sermon illustrations. But one of the other things that began to happen was that people, as I used these sermon illustrations, began reading Flannery O'Connor. It's happened to some of you as well. And then I normally get a strange question. Chuck, I know that you really love it, but it's so weird. Like, how do you really get into it, is the question. And because the short stories are strange, they're somewhat bizarre, where you have monstrous characters who have certain traits that are blown out of proportion. And Flannery O'Connor, towards the end of her career, was asked about this trait of her writing. And I want you to listen carefully to her answer. The novelist with Christian concerns will find in modern life distortions which are repugnant to her. And her problem will be to make them appear as distortions to an audience which is used to seeing them as natural. And she may be forced to take ever more violent means to get her vision across to this hostile audience. When your audience does not hold the same beliefs as you, the writer, do, 
then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing, you shout. And for the blind, you draw large and startling figures. To the hard of hearing, you shout. And so O'Connor's literary methodology was to create monstrous figures in order to communicate, to say something in particular to her southern society about its sickness. And when we read the second chapter of Micah, there's something true of this for us as well. Where to the heart of hearing, God is shouting. God is attempting to communicate. He is working to make something clear and plain. Because he understands that there's blindness among his people. That they are not listening. And that there are extreme problems. Just consider it once again in verses 3-4. through Some of the starkest verses of this passage. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster. For which, for, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day you shall take up a taunt song against you, and moan bitterly, and say, we are utterly ruined. This is what God is saying was to happen in Israel. That there was disaster coming. Specifically, it is speaking of the coming invasion of Assyria in which Israel would be sent into exile and their homes would be decimated. The temple would be overthrown. Everything would be undone. It's a severe and harsh word. And many people ask the question, why? Why does God speak so monstrously? Why does He speak so firmly and uh, and severely here to His people? And one of the most important things for us to remember when we hear these words is that when God does speak so severely, He wounds us in order to heal us. That God's words always carry the capacity of new creation. That yes, they also carry judgment in them when they're not received, but they also carry the capacity of grace. And that God here is attempting to startle Israel. To wake her up from her slumber. To wake us up as well that we hear Him. And that we receive what He says. And that we be drawn into repentance and an experience of grace and mercy. And so that is what is happening here. Is wounding words that are intentioned to heal. Consider again where Micah's sermon begins. It begins with the word woe, which in the original language was a word reserved for usage around funerals and mourning. In other words, what's being communicated here is that Micah says, though alive, that the people of God, Israel, they are walking in the path that leads to the grave. He has already announced a funeral dirge over them. And he says, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. And so despite all the religious trappings that were true of Israel, their worship in the temple, their pilgrimages three times a year, despite all of their tradition, despite all of their talk, despite all of their strong theology, as we'll see throughout the passage, that the church was sick. And Micah is saying that the church is sick unto death. There is something terminal going on here. And so God speaks through His prophet in order to arrest it. And we have to recognize that these same types of dynamics exist among us today. 
And so what does it look like for the church to be sick unto death? And what do we need to be aware of as we hear God's Word today? And there's two things in particular that Micah develops for us. First is this. In verses 1-5, through we see that the sickness involves a hardened disregard for the well-being of our neighbor. If you look in verse 2, we find the accusation. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. And then he furthers this thought in verses 8 and 9. But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. It's a large bit of historical context that's necessary to understand what's exactly happening here. But during this time, this is in the 700s B.C., where the kings of Israel were on the throne, and the people, especially around Jerusalem, had the ruling classes had accumulated large amounts of wealth. And those ruling classes, those rich, wealthy elite, were benefiting from royal policies that were enabling them to take uh, country estates. Now this is the problem, that in Israel, every member of the covenant community was given allotment of the promised land. And then what seems to be happening here is that allotment of land is being taken by injustice. Back to verse 1, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. So there was plotting in the night, and then in the morning, at dawn, they perform it. And that was because morning was the time that the king sat upon his throne to administer justice. And so the wicked were then coming with their plans in which they had plotted at night, and they were bringing those plans to the court, and they were usurping the property in the land of Israel for themselves. This is what is playing out. Micah makes the indictment rather clear. He says that this was coveting. They covet fields and seize them. They were breaking the the tenth commandment. They were not content with what God had allotted to them, and they were even those who had privilege. But yet they wanted what God had not given to them, so they began to reach beyond that, and they take from others. And the problem that is in that time, when your property was taken, it was more than simply taking a possession. It was to take one's identity and status in the community where your ancestors had lived and dwelled and died and lived in faith for centuries. It was also to take your well-being that the only thing left to someone whose property was taken was to be a slave, or rather to be a a wage-earning servant. That this is what happens to so many who were the victims of what was unfolding here. And so these ruling classes, they wanted land and property and what their hearts coveted and desired more than they wanted fidelity to God. So yes, there were social and economic problems in Israel of this day, and the prophet Micah stands against them. But we also have to always remember that when you have social and economic problems, and when you have coveting running wild, the desire for acquisition and possession, 
that that's only because there's a more profound theological problem. You see, the 10th commandment is only broken after you have first shattered the first commandment. That we are to love God alone. That we are to have no other gods before Him. And when we have loved something more than we have loved God, then we will begin to covet. Then we will begin to steal. And we'll find a nest of sins begin to emerge. And that's what happens here in Israel. And Micah sums it up with coveting. And so there is this theological problem of coveting. There is wickedness of all sorts then breaking out. And God warns Israel that there are consequences. That when His people have gone thus this far, and when they have this much disregard for the livelihood of their neighbor, that Israel was designed with its covenant that God had given them, because He had redeemed them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, He then installed them in the promised land where they were to experience life. They were free now to serve God and they were free to live in service of one another. And that has all gotten turned upside down. Everything has been shattered. Because God's love and forgiveness, it does pardon our sins, but it never excuses them. It never makes it just okay that we don't have to worry about it. And so God comes to Israel and He thunders. And He does the same for us when we with hardened hearts have no concern for those around us, especially for those who we share a theological and worshiping community with. That it simply can't work that way. And friends, this is why God is so animated. These strong words of judgment that are so severe God speaks this strongly in order to wake us up, to draw our attention that we have to hear Him. And so when Israel strayed, He sent prophets. This is what God does. He sends a prosecutor, a covenant prosecutor, a prophet in order to speak to His people, to call them back. But as we go into our second point, we'll see that this too can be a problem. It leads to the second part of the sickness that Micah diagnoses. Because in verses 6-11, through we see that the sickness involves hearing only what is convenient. That it involves hearing only what is in keeping with our current lifestyle. That this is what Micah observes amongst the people of God. That yes, they were coveting. Yes, they were stealing. The rich were taking advantage of the poor. That the commandments of God were being trampled on. That there was idolatry on a rampant scale taking place because of economic policy. But all this was being then supported by the religious authorities. And this is the tragedy that Micah sees unfolding in front of him. If you read with me in verse 6, do not preach, thus they preach. And this is a difficult translation. But when they say thus they preach, this is speaking of the prophets. That there were false prophets in Israel. And the false prophets were saying to Micah, do not preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. You see, Micah was bringing a severe word and what were the false prophets saying? No, that's too severe. That's too harsh. That's judgmental. That goes too far. 
Listen to their sermon, go further. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? They're making an appeal to the communion, to the community. Should this really be said? Should you be putting up with someone like Micah? Has the Lord grown impatient? Now they're making a theological argument. They're saying, has God lost his patience? That's what this man is saying. Do you want to listen to him? Do you want to go with him in this? Are these God's deeds? Is their question? Do not God's words do good to him who walks uprightly? And this is what the false prophets were proclaiming. They were saying that Micah was going too far. That he had simply lost it. And then Micah turns to them in verse 11 with a bit of levity and comedy. He says, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. And what Micah is critiquing is just a lifestyle of affluence and comfort that has no regard for the Word of God, that is content with the tradition and the externals, but is not content to sit and be examined by God and to really experience His redemption. They were a people that had forgotten that it was the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. And that because of this grace, they were to then respond in gratitude, empowered by that same grace of God, to live lives offered to Him. And they simply were not interested. And they were looking for someone in the pulpit to validate the lifestyle they decided that they wanted. That's what they wanted to hear. And the prophets themselves were corrupt. If you look in chapter 3, verse 5, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they want something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. And you see the motivation here? Is that the prophet is looking to keep the crowds happy in order to have a paycheck. He's looking to appease the people, but if they're not paying him and serving him, then he'll speak something. But he will not speak something because... It's what God says. And that is the tremendous problem that's then stifling God's ability to contradict His people. That they were going off the rails. They were violating the basic essence of the Ten Commandments, of the covenant that God had made with Israel. That yes, God had loved them, but then they were not returning that love as they should, as they ought to. And they were not loving their neighbor. That this was to be the primary expression of their faith was having received God's blessing and then loving God and loving neighbor around them. And it was all upside down and it was torn up. And so the false prophets make a theological argument. It's important to understand how false prophecy works. They were specifically commenting on Exodus 34.6, which is where God reveals His covenant name to Moses. And He says, I am the Lord who abounds in steadfast love and mercy from generation to generation. I'm slow to anger. We find this recitation all across the Old Testament. And so the false prophets were asking. They were saying, has God grown short in His patience? And friends, this is critical for us to hear. Because the false prophets were interacting with Scripture. They were interacting with the character of God. One of my professors, Roger Nicole, he's now died passed away a few years ago, but he was old and salty by the time I got to seminary. And one of his famous lines that he would tell the students, 
you normally uh, had the opportunity to interact with him in his office. And he would say this, heresy is a biblical truth in isolation. Every heretic begins in a good place, is what Dr. Nicole was saying. That it begins with the truth in isolation. Because what was cut off from Exodus 34 is that God also will not relent if His people are unrepentant. That that was part of God's promise. That He would not relent. That He would go after them. That He would even go as far, the covenant says in Deuteronomy 28, to send them into exile in order for them to repent. That God's discipline, that His severe words are always intended to wound in order that He could heal us. To bring us to repentance. That's what God is doing here in this passage. And the false prophets, they had simply taken one truth of Scripture, something that we must and we love to affirm, the grace and the mercy of God. And they held that out in isolation from everything else that Scripture makes clear. And friends, that's how heresy works. And they were doing so to their own advantage. And they were watching others being taken advantage of. And they weren't concerned. It didn't strike them. And friends, our role is to listen as carefully as we can. That we must be open to being contradicted. That God does have a word of critique against us when we fall into sins and hardened hearts. And the question for us is, are we open to being contradicted? Or does our religious life, is it simply in service of what we already have decided? Do you allow God to contradict you? Do you put yourself in the place where God can contradict you? Do you put yourself in front of His Word? Do you put yourself in front of the teaching of that Word, exposing yourself to words of comfort and to words of contradiction? Are you doing that? Do you theologically reflect? Do you think about what you hear here or in Bible study or in the school of discipleship? And then are you working that in and asking yourself, hey, how is my life incongruent with this? And then are you really open to God reorienting the way that you think about the world, the way that you relate to the world? This is the posture that the prophet Micah is attempting to create. A suppleness here amongst the people of God that they will hear it, that they will receive it. And friends, for all of us, this is where we must sit. We must sit in that place, asking ourselves the question, are we open to the Word of God crashing into our lives, contradicting us, giving Him the green light to be able to say what is not right, what is not well with us? But what needs to happen? What does need to happen when we find ourselves not caring and loving for the community that God has put us in as we're supposed to? And what needs to happen when we're simply listening to what gives us comfort? Listening to what we already agree with? The end of the passage in verses 12 and 13 points us in a very interesting direction. The prophet Micah did preach during the time of of King Hezekiah in the 700s, the early 700s. And what is happening is that 
northern Israel uh, is being threatened, has been taken into exile by Assyria. And now God is concerned, and he sends Micah, and he sends other prophets like Isaiah to the southern kingdom, and they're crying out to them. And they're saying, hey, if you're not careful, if you don't repent, if you don't receive this word of contradiction, then that too is going to happen to you. And so we find this recorded in 2 Kings 19, where the king Hezekiah is on the throne. And King Hezekiah turns. There had been incredible wickedness and deceitfulness that had enabled this whole corrupt system of coveting to flourish. But in the prophet Jeremiah, we find a summary, though, of Micah's ministry. It's worth turning there. If you turn to Jeremiah 26, verses 18 through 19. This is written some 120, 130 years later. Jeremiah's ministry is being evaluated, and some elders come forward, and this is what they say. Verse 17, And certain elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? They were asking the question. Did Micah get put to death for saying these things? Because this is what some people wanted to do to Jeremiah. Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? That was Jeremiah's summary of Micah's ministry. See, Micah came with a severe word. But what we know about the days of Hezekiah is that there was a turn. There was repentance. That the contradiction was received. That the king was open and the people followed the king. There was great turn. And so the Assyrian armies came all the way to the walls of Jerusalem and they taunted King Hezekiah and they said, your God cannot withstand the forces of our armies. No one else has. And then in a miraculous moment, there was a plague and a scourge that struck the Assyrian army. And they were gone overnight. God delivered His people. And in verses 12 and 13, this is what Micah points to. He says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold. And what is being pointed to here is that the community was going to be gathered inside the walls of Jerusalem and that God was going to be their shepherd, that He would protect them, that He would be their refuge, that He would be their defender, that He would be their shield, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. And so he's pointing to the reality that the Assyrians were going to come. And this is where Micah turns to the grace of God. And he says, He who opens the breach goes up before them, they break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Potentially confusing verses. But this speaks of the king leading his people out of the besieged city in victory. That the Assyrian army would be gone, that they would be defeated as the people turned to the Lord and looked to him for grace and repentance. That God would lead his people out of the city victorious. 
that no longer walled up and protected inside, that they would be led out, the Lord at their head. And this is what Isaiah is saying, I mean, Micah is saying, will happen to the people of God as they look to Him in repentance and faith. As they receive that contradictory word. As they fall in need of that contradictory word and they receive it. That God would be our refuge. That God would be our protector and defender. That the Lord will send His King to defend us and to lead us into victory. And of course, this is what our God has done. This is what our Lord Jesus comes into the world for. In order to protect us and defend us. To be our shepherd and our shield. To gather us into safe pasture and to lead us by fighting for us. That the victory is His and when we're united to Him, we share in that great victory that He passes through the breach. The Lord at our head leading us into victory. This is the grace of God offered to the people of God who stay supple before Him. Who hear His Word and desire to respond. That we don't earn anything by that response. But it shows that we have truly believed and it demonstrates that. And so Micah speaks a severe word to us. That we hear. That we make sure that our refuge is being sought here. And so friends, this Advent season, as we live in light of the return of our Lord Jesus, do everything you can to receive the contradiction. God speaking into your life, revealing things. And then turn to Him. Don't look for false prophets who simply confirm what you already believe. Don't simply reject them because they have a different perspective. And then let Christ be your refuge. Let Him be the one who leads you into victory because He is the victorious one. He went down into death and He was raised again. And that when we place our faith in Him, we share in all of that victory. That's ours. He's our refuge. He's our defender. He's our shield. He's our protector. Let Him fight for you. Find your refuge there. Let's pray. Father, as we hear these severe words, they do wound us and they expose sinfulness in our lives and in our hearts. It also exposes how slow we are to recognize it. And Lord, we ask that you would help us, that you would turn us, that we may be turned, that we may seek after you, that we would find refuge and forgiveness and life and peace, that you would be the victor who leads us into victory. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.